Hello, and welcome to Real-Time Resilience, a series of podcasts from ServiceNow that will explore key top-of-mind topics for CROs. In this three-part series, we will focus on operational resilience, DORA, and monitoring controls. Our experts will share their insights and learnings to help you navigate your IT risk management journey. In the final podcast in the series, we will explore the topic of monitoring controls. It's time. Let's talk real-time resilience. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the ServiceNow Risk podcast. I'm Rahul, your host for today, and we'll be discussing internal controls with Emilyn and Sumitesh. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Emilyn King. I uh, lead our pre-sales function for the UK and our German Switzerland business. Um, within our risk solutions within ServiceNow, I have a background of over 10 years with, with Deloitte and professional services doing a lot of sort of internal controls, advisory and transformation type services. And then from my side, uh, hello everyone, my name is Sumadesh Sharma. I look after our risk business uh, for Switzerland and the whole of Central Eastern Europe. Um, and from an experience perspective, uh, been working in the GRC domain for the last 17 years. Uh, primarily in the past uh, with uh, the big force and management consulting and CRO advisory. Thanks, Sumitesh and Emlyn. I guess now we can directly jump into the questions which our participants are interested to hear and your thought leadership on those topics. So the first question I have for you is on internal controls. As you know that the domain has changed quite a bit over the last few years, we are seeing the introduction of new regulations and guidelines across various regions. Now, how is the technology world adapting to this change? And are you seeing a greater demand for internal controls related to technology all across the market? Yeah, I can take that one. Um, I think personally, uh, there's probably two components to that. I think the first component is really how uh, the certain technology world is adapting from a regulatory standpoint. Um, And I think the second part of that is really around uh, the demand elements and and how the demand is changing from, from what we can see. Uh, personally, I think there are sort of two sort of groups of, of, of companies, and then and each type of company, does, for me uh, personally, buys differently. I think that's uh, for your larger organisations where you're looking at sort of core dig- digitization of internal controls and processes. Um, so this might be their first journey. Um, it might be their initial step into the technology market, and it's really where they're trying to look at. Sort of building down the foundations on a world that's typically been fairly manual in the past. So very spreadsheet driven, very sort of high reliance on, on Microsoft Office based technologies. Um, and it's really looking at sort of bringing them into line with uh, new regulation being passed, so UK SOX being one, um, but other regulatory, uh, regulatory frameworks across the world as well. Um, for these organizations, a large amount of the focus is just getting them off the basics. Um, so looking at some basic workflow solutions, uh, looking at digitizing core processes like controls registers, risk registers, um, and the likes, and sort of bringing them into a world where they can manage uh, sort of the, the, the standard control framework that they've got, but also they can start to generate insight across their control framework so they can see uh, how one control failure, one control deficiency can affect multiple departments or uh, can cause multiple issues. And also have an ability to track some of those those issues that we then identify and find so they can start to remediate them and then follow the remediation through closure. 
Um, one thing that we see from a regulatory standpoint is the regulators are going to be quite hot on the ability for people to prove how they have improved uh, certain processes and technologies. So if they're unable to prove how they can, how they've sort of actioned on some of those, those issues that they've previously identified, um, that's going to be one thing that a regulator is probably going to put more time and attention to. And the latter uh, type of organization um, are those companies that typically have a, already have a, a formal control framework, a formal approach to internal controls. Um, they might use a, a company or technologies like SAP GRC. They might use a number of different fragmented technologies across the organization. And they're really looking to, to kind of transform the way that they, they, they structure their internal controls processes. So efficiency is really the big driver um, to what they to, to their focus of, of getting uh, into different solutions. And in those organizations, uh, they're obviously looking at more advanced technologies. So how can they further automate controls and move that dial from automated to or from manual to automated controls across the organization? Um, they're also probably looking at things like continuous monitoring, which is driving obviously insight in a continuous uh, way in an automated fashion uh, across their control framework and looking at sort of more unique ways um, of, of generating insight across their controls. So, you know, do we have duplicate controls in certain uh, situations and how can we reduce that duplication? So for a lot more sort of formal approach and a lot more sophisticated approach around controls. Uh, but I think both of them, um, they all are, are looking at things like uh, cost of solutions. They're all looking at things like um, functionality that solution that can, can provide and also the, the ability to grow with that solution. I think a lot of the times we're seeing uh, companies on the market and they buy a certain solution to address a certain regulation and quickly find out, say, three, four years down the line when that regulation, regulation uh, starts to change and adapt and enhance that they're all, they're, the solution that they've purchased um, might not be fit for, for purpose. And then they have to go out to market again to, to look for a different one. So lots of different ways of, of how that's changing. But I think the technology world in general um, needs to sort of provide for both of those types of organizations. So uh, for the sophisticated uh, organization, but also for the organization looking to, to enter their digitization journey. Thanks, Simon. I think that was a great insight on the world of continuous control monitoring and how robotic process automation, as you mentioned, can help use that technology, what we have today as a driver for real-time insights on those system of records like SAP, Coupa, as you mentioned. Now, taking the ship away from how uh, the companies are progressing from a maturity perspective, let's talk about the market in general. Uh, I have a threefold question here. Uh, now, which industry do you see has the greatest level of demand for internal controls technology? Now, within these industries, what you can qualify as mature versus non-mature? And if they are non-mature yet, how is the demand over the last few years in their space? So probably I can take that one, Rahul. So if you're looking at um, majority of how uh, historically internal controls have been leveraged, right? I, mean, I think uh, SOX has to, uh, to do a lot with it. So primarily, if you see the much more mature industries, these are your financial services and to some extent, uh, life sciences, healthcare, so the more regulated ones. And these industries and the customers on these industries uh, tend to be uh, more on the higher side of the maturity level when it comes to internal controls because they have been uh, put into this process uh, by the regulators and demands um, much earlier than many of the customers are now realizing. So if you look at how they have built their internal controls processes uh, and the level of technology they are using as of today, 
this is much, much, uh, let's say, from a maturity cycle uh, further ahead than some of the other industries. But a lot has to do with how uh, demands are changing and how the priorities for the customers are changing. So definitely, like Emily alluded to before, regulatory demand is definitely driving these ones. And the more global uh, the organization and the more regulated the organization, <clears throat> they're trying to find out solutions which are really scalable, right? Which can address those multiple regulations uh, um, globally. But at the same time, a lot of uh, the drivers uh, for these solutions is also how we can actually uh, reduce the cost of compliance because um, managing these controls and the number of growing controls is becoming a real pain for many of our customers, especially in financial industries and a lot of the regulated industries. So they are more and more looking to solutions which are scalable, but at the same time can help with automation, with CCM, uh, with RPAs. So finding different ways of automation to reduce overall cost of compliance. Now, if you look at um, the less mature industries, right? So these could be uh, your public sector ones. And again, a lot of the reasons for the, uh, for the maturity level on the lower side is because they have not been historically that regulated. So this is also driving um, how they have been adopting and looking at the GRC solution market. But what we have seen as a trend is these customers are also now realizing the benefits of adopting a proper GRC solution, which can actually help them automate a lot of the existing manual processes, move away from management of internal controls over Excel files or legacy solutions to a more digitized solution. Their goal may not be to go level five, level four maturity with the whole CCM, but at least they have started digitizing those processes and trying to understand how they can drive a more compliant approach across the internal controls processes. Thanks, Sumitesh. I guess two key points which I heard were resonating with me, like for financial services or the ones who are highly matured, control harmonization is what is driving them to reduce their manual spend on uh, their risk journey or their control maturity. And for the less mature industries, I think jumping into that technology wagon is what they are looking for. Great insight there, Sumitesh. Thanks for that. What type of capabilities now do you see that are of greatest interest in the market? Do you feel companies are ready to adopt these capabilities? And while moving in this journey, what kind of groundwork do they actually need to do to become actually be compliant to that level four, level five you were earlier alluding to, Sumitesh? Well, I will, uh, I'll probably jump in here quickly um, just to start, start the, the conversation. But um, for me, I think from a, a capability perspective, um, I think they're has been a large amount of conversation for probably the last five to six years around the con content or the capability of continuous controls monitoring. And it's not a new topic. Absolutely not. I mean, we've been talking about this for probably quite some time now. Um, but what I do see is um, a more focused effort and a more focused attention around what continuous controls monitoring actually is. Um, I think when we start to see organizations uh, sort of five to six years ago that were talking about continuous monitoring, a lot of the, the conversation that we had, really the, the ambition that they had to drive monitoring was probably greater than what the capabilities they had access to at the time, but also probably was also at a point um, a lot more sophisticated in terms of how their internal control structure was uh, and then level of maturity around controls at the time as well. 
Um, so it kind of leads me to to talk through in terms of the groundwork and the readiness um, points that you mentioned. From a continuous controls monitoring point of view, uh, you have to have a control framework. So if you don't have a control framework and it's not standardized, it's very hard to drive a, a, an effective continuous controls monitoring program across your organization. Um, so certain areas might be more standardized than others. Um, you might find one specific uh, area of the business, say mostly in the IT space, large amount of regulation around that, large amount of framework and, uh, and structure around that. So if it's not a, sort of a NIST space in the cyber world, um, it's the, the ISO space in the IT world, a lot of those will have existing frameworks already in place. Um, so the level of standardization is fairly mature in, in that market. Um, so what we typically see is, is, is a really easy way, a really easy place to start with continuous monitoring because it's, it's an area that's relatively standardized. Uh, the financial controls world as well typically is quite standardized, um, specifically if you're an organization that uh, is regulated in the US, um, so have, have been under a SOX-based system for some time. Uh, there definitely will be a level of standardization already in place. Um, so therefore, that sort of side is, is, is taken uh, care of. The second element, which I think is probably the one that's uh, most overlooked when, when I see organizations undertaking a, a control monitoring journey, um, is the element around data readiness. Um, and also an element around how you want to monitor that and, and what sort of insight you want to gather from it. Um, so I often see a mistake uh, in terms of the confusion between what we call uh, continuous monitoring versus actual control automation. Um, in the continuous monitoring world, we are, as per the name suggests, monitoring controls. So we're looking for outliers, we're looking for issues that might occur in, in that specific control that's already been implemented. So usually this is fairly, fairly targeted towards configuration-based controls or manual-based controls where there's a lot of sort of effort, a lot of sort of um, uh, flow of, of, of volume of, of, of activity. So if I think of so as an example, a, a three-way match process where there's a lot of information coming through, a lot of transactions happening. So that transactional-based monitoring typically is one which uh, tends to get a, a lot of attention, a lot of uh, insight based on that. Um, but basically what I, I see is um, from a data readiness point of view, you need to have access to that data. So to have a continuous monitoring program, um, but you have a set of data that you need to leverage and it's in, a, in an environment that you can't access or it's very hard to access, that typically is going to provide a lot of issues, a lot of concerns around that, how we use that data and the ability to leverage that data. And the second element in terms of uh, the, the rule set and how we're monitoring is a lot of organizations will jump in and say, we want to monitor these three, three or four controls, but they don't really know what is the criteria that will define a red flag in essence. So how do we define a specific transaction or an instance as an issue that we want to flag? Um, so it's also having the ability to understand what is going to trigger a, an alert or what's going to trigger an issue. Um, because if we don't have that criteria, then it's very hard to monitor the control because then we're actually going to be looking at a lot of different issues. They could get quite a lot of variation in terms of uh, issues or incidents that actually are relevant for us or incidents or issues that are not relevant. So we could actually end up spending a lot of time on sifting through red flags that might not be of any interest or attention or need attention. Um, so the, the deeper that rule set is, the deeper that criteria is, the more uh, you're gonna have a great level, a greater level of, of, of accuracy in the data that's coming through from an, an, an issue perspective. Uh, anything else you wanted to add, Simitesh, to that? Uh, sure, I, mean, I think these are actually really great points. So what I will really add to that, actually just two points. So really 
one thing is definitely the quality of data, which goes into driving that CCM. But one very important, but often overlooked part of this whole process is the integration to that data, integration to the source of the data, right? And if you see the market um, is becoming filled with GRC solutions, uh, a lot of them actually bringing in different integration capabilities. But if you look at the scale of information required to drive the CCM, it's very, very important that we are looking for solutions which makes having these integrations or building these integrations easy. So if you can look for platforms or solutions which are providing low-code, no-code capabilities to build these integrations, or even better, if there are pre-built integrations to many of the known source solutions, that really helps you drive and accelerate the process to run your CCM. And the other aspect, which I would mention purely from experience and talking to multiple customers across the globe, is how do you start with CCM, right? So there is always, um, let's say, a vision to have an end-to-end CCM running to drive the cost of compliance down. But many times when you look at the big bang approach, this is where a lot of it goes wrong. So personally, from my experience, I would suggest when you're looking at building a CCM mode, so always start small. If you can look at driving and automating some of your ITGCs or any configuration controls, this is your quick start, quick win, low-hanging fruits we should start with. And as they start building into uh, your solution, you can then scale it to additional financial controls uh, from there after. Thanks, Amdin and Sumitesh. Uh, that was an exclusive checklist on how to adopt a CCM technology, I guess. Now, our audience uh, would want to hear from your vast experience, I guess, on if you can talk about a specific company's journey around internal controls and how they have effectively adopted technology to enhance their business process, to drive outcomes and value back to their stakeholders and their shareholders? Yeah, sure. I can take uh, take that one. So I guess to, to probably summarize two uh, example customers um, that we've, we're dealing with at the moment, um, and because they're two different journeys, I think they explain them very well. And so the first customer um, basically took a journey with us where they looked at it from an assurance perspective. So um, a SOX regulated customer, so lots of lots of effort that they put around the, the control uh, assurance lifecycle, and they approached it really around how do we drive sort of uh, efficiencies through our assurance program. So what they were trying to do is looking at enabling the tester uh, and enabling the control owners as well um, to have a lot more data on hand so they can drive a more seamless assurance program. Um, so they don't have sort of weeks on end of collecting evidence at the start to drive sort of their, their, their insights and findings, but they actually use the system to start to collect some of that data. So when, an, when a uh, control owner has to provide a, an, a, an attestation against their controls, now they don't have to go enter into six or seven different systems. They can enter in one system, they can have that data ported through to them into that single system, and then they can use that to, to determine their, their outcomes of their, their assurance work. Uh, all the attestations. So they, they've sort of focused heavily on, on an assurance efficiency point of view, and then looked at ways to drive automation through the entire internal controls lifecycle. So looking at other elements as, 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 as at the control operation level, looking at opportunities to drive automation of controls, 
and currently they're in this, the situation of looking at how they can drive a more um, robust uh, continuous monitoring process across their entire framework of control. So again, looking at it from a different lens, they, they definitely started on, on at the assurance level and then went dug deeper into the actual control level. Whereas the other organization that we've been working with, um, they, they did it the opposite way. So they actually took it at a foundational level and they looked at one specific process, which was around the IT side. Uh, they started to standardize a lot of the controls in the IT space. So using uh, ServiceNow to drive that standardization. Um, and then they were expanded out of IT into finance and are now looking to do the exact same on finance. So, so they are sort of come from a, a, a ground level control perspective and then brought them to their way up. So now the elements of assurance are starting to kick into place um, because those foundational elements are there already. So you can approach it on both ways. It's not restrictive. You don't have to approach it from a purely from a foundational level. Um, you can actually approach it from an assurance level, start to get some insights, start to get some value and prove that value at the start and then expand down to the, the control level. Um, or you could also take it from the foundational level. Both both effective paths, um, both have seen a, a lot of adoption through that, throughout this, uh, the, their life cycle as well. And a lot, both of them have seen a lot of benefit in terms of uh, the outcomes that they've, they've been able to achieve and, and the efficiencies that they've been able to build. Thanks. Um, I think the horizontal and vertical view of how your customer approach to the business process outcome was clearly insightful. Uh, now, we know that in an internal controls world, assurance functions from the three lines model are the one who are doing the heavy lifting, right? Now, while they do the heavy lifting, we also understand that they lag when it comes to technology adoption. Uh, this can be due to rigorous nature of their assurance guidelines, their principles, their audit timelines. But do you see the market changing in the near future to help them enable and get that burden done from a technology adoption point of view? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think going on from what I was saying before in terms of the two customer examples there, um, I think there's there's a large amount of change on its way to to assurance functions. Um, I've seen just uh, in my, my time in, in, in Big Four Consultancy, um, the rise in in, in uh, trends around agile audit, the rise in trends around sort of consolidating the three lines, um, using sort of leverages across the three lines, things like reliance models on how we do testing. So there's a lot of different sort of uh, uh, initiatives, different sort of programs, different sort of insights in terms of how you run assurance in a, in, a, in an organization. I think the that what we've seen historically is because the the guidelines have been so rigid in terms of driving sort of independence across the three lines, particularly the third to, to the first and second. Um, we've often seen a, a, a level of resistance to drive technology change or digitalization or optimization in the assurance functions. And I, I think that's natural. I think there's, there's always going to be that level of, of, of resistance around there, particularly what we've seen in, in high profile instances and in like the Enron cases and, and more recent cases as well. Um, where you haven't had that degree of separation uh, between your assurance function and, and your business. Um, but what we're also starting to see, and, and I think more commonly than some of the issues that, that we've seen in the market, um, is a desire to have your assurance function operating in step with the business. So no longer having a, an organization which has, has an assurance function that has their own control list or their own control register that they ordered against, um, but starting to actually say, and I need to use the business's controls because this is how they run their business and starting to look at how they can actually embed change within the business process. So truly understanding how a P2P process is run, for example, and the intricacies involved in that process, or in a more sort of general example, truly understanding how a supply chain works. 
and the different elements across is moving so goods from one country to another and all the, the intricacies involved in that. So when they start to look at doing their reviews, let's say they're doing a fraud review in, in the, the, the movement of girl logistics example I gave, um, they can actually start to give recommendations that are relevant to the actual people in the business, those control on owners and control operators actually operating those controls, um, that they're seeing it as valuable, but is also seeing it as improving business outcomes. So I think that element is, is starting to see a, a big rise in, in terms of demand. And naturally, technology needs to support that. So, so what we typically are seeing is, is organizations that are looking at technologies that can take a lot of the business data that's getting generated throughout the, the operation of, of, of various uh, business processes and actually pushing that into the assurance function, giving them access to that data and then starting to use stuff like analytics to start to identify the, any issues, red flags or the, that could be of concern in that business process itself. But typically, obviously, that's going to, to require some level of formality and some level of structure. And this is where we see um, things like uh, reliance criteria that I see starting to, to uh, become a, more, a bigger trend. So having, say, your third line function actually starting to dictate to your second and, and first line around, if you're doing an insurance activity, these are the things we require to, there to be in place. So a, a certain minimum number of samples to are taken or a certain uh, number of evidence sort of steps that you have to have or degrees of separation between the auditor and the actual um, uh, person in the business who, who's, who's operating that control. So all of those um, criteria essentially we're starting to see is being adopted and pushed down into the second line teams so they can adopt that and drive their assurance activities. So there's an element of reliance that can be taken by the third line on, on the activity they're performing. But all of this, and I sort of get, said it already, but get, it all goes back down to technology. So how can we actually better use technology to drive insight and also visibility across that, that, that assurance um, process? So we can see and the system can show us all of the things that they've done to, to, to come to that conclusion. And it's all visible there and it's all reviewable. So if there's something that they wanted to, to review, um, the assurance, say the third line a stakeholder can come in there, can review the activity that they've done, and then they can mark it off and be, be, can be happy with the process that was taken, as opposed to being in a situation where they're completely in the dark on how that assurance uh, finding, how that assurance outcome was obtained previously. So sort of combining and, and, and squashing those three lines together um, starts to give you that ability to drive insight and, and, and further focus. What we've also seen, um, it, and I sort of mentioned at the start, is the growth of agile auditing, um, where um, you have a system which is pretty much driven like your agile project capability is now, um, where you get the ability to flex what your water program is going to look like, um, and it also allows you to focus in on areas of bigger concern. So you don't have the situation where you run your insurance program for the year, you get to the end of the year, and you looked at 15 areas, and of those 15, uh, 14 were perfectly normal and perfectly fine and have been for the last six years. And one area of concern was identified, but we didn't do enough research or, or in-depth investigation into that area to really get to the, the root cause of it. So there's a sort of a high level of uh, uh, recommendation that is provided, which doesn't naturally address the full root cause of, uh, of that issue. And I see from an agile audit perspective is, is uh, again, technology enabling this uh, is getting a system in place where you can start to flex what that program is. You can start to adapt and change where you start to see a specific area of interest, investigate more deeper into that, in, uh, that area, bring out greater insights, but also have the ability to flex things around as the organization changes. 
So let's say midway through the uh, through the year, that a big uh, sort of acquisition uh, happens, and we can start to say actually we we had a set of activities we wanted to prioritize. We're going to deprioritize this because something major has changed, and we need to adapt and and, and change as a result. And a perfect example of this is is actually the pandemic when we saw the pandemic hit. Um, so how many organizations still keep, kept running the same audit program for the entire year? Um, cognizant, fully cognizant that something major has happened in, in, in the market that's caused them to, to have to take shortcuts in certain areas. And, and that's really where, you, where your, your higher degree of fraud is going to come up and really where you want to be investigating a, a lot more deeper. Anything to add for yourself, uh, Simtish? No, I mean, I think these are really, really great points. So everything uh, that would come to my mind, I think you covered that very well. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, I guess I heard like people, process, technology, while organizations are maturing their people in terms of getting them certified, getting them trained, uh, they are building that cultural change within there. But if the technology is not there to support, uh, I guess your whole structure falls. So I think the reliance on the technology to help you gain that intelligence to get you across the line from an insight perspective, from a driver perspective, from a monitoring perspective is the key value what I hear from you guys. So thanks again, uh, Emblin and Sumitesh. It was great chatting with you today and gain from your experience. Thanks a lot. Thanks for your time. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the topic discussed in today's podcast, download our white paper, Risk Controls, the future is automation. This was the final episode of our Real-Time Resilience series. If you would like further insights on any of the topics discussed in this series, or would like to explore other risk and compliance themes for CROs, use the search bar on the ServiceNow website.